Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs. Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hey, I'm Courtney. And I'm Amanda. And this is a Nefarious Nightmare, now officially partnered with Darkcast Network. We cover true crime and the paranormal. We raise awareness about the senseless acts committed against victims. We won't go easy on the offenders, but show serious empathy to the victims. And sometimes we dive into some weird topics outside of true crime, like the paranormal or even conspiracy theories. Our listeners are definitely the best, and we are their biggest fans. So join us. Come on in. All are welcome. Let's dive into these cases. You can find us on any podcast platform and on YouTube. Be sure to find us, hit subscribe, and share us with your friends. We do have great life advice, such as, don't be a Richard. Yes, <laughs> and wear deodorant. We don't want to smell you. But all are welcome to a nefarious nightmare. Hey, hey, welcome back to Autumn's Oddities. I'm Autumn. Well, I have wanted to get into today's topic since I was a small child because I love, and I mean love, history. I even used to sit around and watch the History Channel in my free time because I am that kind of nerd. Studying for my degrees in political science only took me further down the rabbit hole of political theory and history, and you can't talk about either one of those things without bringing up today's subject, the Kennedy family. From plane crashes to assassinations, overdoses, to terrible illness. The Kennedy family has been struck by a bizarre amount of devastating tragedies over the years. After a car crash in 1969, Ted Kennedy, who by this point had lost four of his siblings under tragic or just weird circumstances, wondered aloud if some awful curse actually did hang over all of the Kennedys. The Kennedy family is sometimes thought of as America's royal family. From their Harvard educations and presidential appointments to their Hollywood looks and everyman approachability, they were and still are admired and loved by many. But it wasn't all glitz and glamour that made this famous family iconic. There's another side to their story. It seems that in every generation of this dynasty, there's been some terrible tragedy, with many family members suffering and dying in some horrendous or just really untimely way. It seems as though the family must be cursed. Just as a family member reached success, they were snuffed out by some tragic occurrence. And you're going to hear me say tragic a lot because there's not really another way to describe some of these events. They are just, you know, 
bizarre, untimely, tragic events, for lack of a better word. Tracing the family tree is a journey in misfortune, but also a celebration of their achievements because they did some pretty great things. I've constructed a timeline because there are indeed so many tragedies that befell the Kennedys that it necessitated an entire timeline. I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of these events, but there are some on this list that I was completely unaware of. So let's get into it. In 1941, Rosemary Kennedy was lobotomized. Rosemary Kennedy, born Rose Marie Kennedy on September 13, 1918, was the third child and eldest daughter of Joseph and Rose Kennedy. She was thought to have suffered from a lack of oxygen at birth, and Rosemary was slower to crawl, walk, and speak than her brothers, and she experienced learning difficulties when she reached school age. Okay, same with my daughter. It's called delayed development, and it's not terribly uncommon. Her family sent her to a school for the intellectually disabled and ensured that she had extra time and attention spent on her. Despite her delays, Rosemary participated in most family activities. In the diary she kept as a teenager, she described people she met, dances and concerts she attended, and even a visit to the Roosevelt White House. When her father was appointed as the U.S. Ambassador to Britain in 1938, Rosemary went to live in London and was presented at court along with her mother and sister, Kathleen, at age 20. But when the family returned to the United States in 1940, Rosemary was not making progress but seemed instead to be going backwards, as her sister Eunice later wrote. At 22, she became increasingly irritable and difficult. The following year, after being persuaded by a doctor that a lobotomy lobotomy, would help to calm his daughter and prevent her sometimes violent mood swings, Joseph Kennedy authorized the operation. And I'm going to go ahead and stop you right there. First of all, how does a 22-year-old woman not have license over medical procedures being performed on her own body? And secondly, I just can't fucking believe that medical doctors actually believed that removing a piece of someone's brain was the cure to everything from, you know, just like general depression and malaise to psychosis. Didn't work, obviously. The lobotomy was botched, leaving Rosemary with the intellectual capabilities of a two-year-old and taking away her ability to walk and talk. So you took your daughter that seemed to be functioning, but wasn't a star like your other kids, maybe needed a little more attention, and made her actually incapacitated. It's fucked. So on the recommendation of Archbishop Cushing, Rosemary was sent to St. Coletta's School for Exceptional Children in Jefferson, Wisconsin. She spent the rest of her life cared for in private institutions, hidden away, and discussed only in the vaguest of terms, as her family believed that knowledge of her mental illness could prove damaging for their political aspirations. Eunice Kennedy Shriver had a close relationship with her older sister, and she felt a great deal of empathy for the plight of her sister. In 1962, Eunice started a summer day camp in her own backyard for children's and, and adult children's children and adults with intellectual disabilities, which eventually evolved into the Special Olympics. So the Kennedy family actually helped found the Special Olympics, and I did not know that. You learn something new every day. I don't love uh, the reason they founded it, but I mean, I don't want to say good came out of it, but if something had to come out of it, this was the best possible outcome, I guess. Rosemary Kennedy died on January 7th, 2005 at age 86. Eunice said in her eulogy that Rosemary left a lasting legacy. 
Along with inspiring Eunice's own work with Special Olympics, Rosemary had inspired her brother, President John F. Kennedy, to write and enact legislation designed to improve the quality of life for Americans with disabilities. She inspired her sister, Jean Kennedy Smith, to to start very special arts, and her nephew, Anthony Shriver, to start Best Buddies. Hospitals, schools, and other facilities around the world have been named in her honor. This is so sad and unnecessary to me. I mean, your daughter has violent mood swings. Maybe just have some patience and get her help rather than removing part of her brain and making her completely non-functioning. Also, if you're going to do something like that, don't lock her away in an institution and pretend that she doesn't exist. That's just fucking gross. So this was a tragedy, sure, but this was a preventable one. 1944, Joe Kennedy Jr. is killed in action. Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., the oldest child of Joseph and Rose Kennedy, was born on July 25, 1915. He attended the Choate School in Connecticut and the London School of Economics prior to entering Harvard, where he graduated cum laude in 1938. He went on to Harvard Law School, but left before his final year to volunteer as a Navy flyer. The eldest Kennedy son, Joe Jr., as he was known, was a high achiever. His father had aspirations for Joe Jr. to one day become president, and he would have actually been the first Catholic U.S. president. But as as luck had it, his brother took that honor away years later. Joe had already begun a political career when America entered into World War II. He enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve in June of 1941 and trained to be a naval aviator before being dispatched to Britain. He was awarded his wings in May of 1942 and flew Caribbean patrols and in September of 1943 was sent to England with the 1st Naval Squadron to fly B-24s with the British Naval Command. After completing 25 combat missions, he volunteered for top-secret assignments known as Operation Aphrodite and Operation Anvil. One of these missions, in August of 1944, an explosive that his plane was carrying detonated early, killing Joe and his co-pilot instantly. The details surrounding his final mission and death were kept secret until the end of the war, obviously, you know, state security. And Joe Jr. was only 29 years old when he died in action. His military service, which ended with his death on August 12, 1944, was described as follows by his brother, John F. Kennedy. His squadron, flying in the bitter winter over the Bay of Biscay, suffered heavy casualties, and by the time Joe had completed his designated number of missions in May, he had lost his former co-pilot and a number of close friends. Joe refused his proffered leave and persuaded his crew to remain on for D-Day. They flew frequently during June and July, and at the end of July, they were given another opportunity to go home. He felt it unfair to ask his crew to stay on longer, and they returned to the United States. He remained, for he had heard of a new and special assignment for which volunteers had been requested, which would require another month of the most dangerous type of flying. It may be felt, perhaps, that Joe should not have pushed his luck so far and should have accepted his leave and come home. But two facts must be borne in mind. First, at the time of his death, he had completed probably more combat missions and heavy bombers than any other pilot of his rank in the Navy, and therefore was preeminently qualified. And secondly, as he told a friend early in August, he considered the odds at least 50-50, and Joe never asked for any better odds than that. 
The secret mission on which he lost his life was described by a fellow officer after it was declassified, and it is as follows. Joe regarded as an experienced patrol plane commander and a fellow officer, an expert in radio control projects, was to take a drone liberator bombed bomber loaded with 21,170 pounds of high explosives, wow, into the air and to stay with it until two mother planes had achieved complete radio control over the drone. They were then to bail out over England. The drone under the control of the mother planes was to proceed on to the mission, which was to culminate in a crash dive on the target, a V-2 rocket launching site in Normandy. The airplane was in flight with routine checking of the radio controls proceeding satisfactorily. When at 6.20 p.m. on August 12, 1944, two explosions blasted the drone, resulting in the death of its two pilots. No final conclusions as to the cause of the explosions has ever been reached. Joe was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross and also the Air Medal. In 1946, a destroyer, the USS Joseph P. Kennedy, destroyer number 850, was launched at the Four River Shipyards as the Navy's final tribute to a gallant officer and his heroic devotion to duty. The destroyer, the USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., DD-850, is now a museum in Battleship Cove, Fall River, Massachusetts. In 1946, the Joseph P. Kennedy Foundation was established by Ambassador and Mrs. Joseph B. Kennedy to honor their fallen son. The foundation's goal is to improve the way society treats those with intellectual disabilities and some really like other antiquated language that I'm not going to read because it sounds fucking ignorant. 1948. Kathleen Kick Kennedy dies in a plane crash. Uh, if you couldn't tell, every member of the Kennedy family has a given name and then they have a nickname. I don't think any of them goes by their given name. They've all been given a nickname. I will explain. I'll tell you, you know, what their nickname is. So the story of Kathleen Kick Kennedy, the rebellious fourth daughter of Rose and Joseph Kennedy, who defied her family for love, was unpublicized after her untimely death to avoid scandal. Kathleen was born in Brookline, Massachusetts in 1920. And according to her friend Lynn McTaggart, author of 1983's Kathleen Kennedy, Her Life and Times, she was the only rebel of the family. And her friend went on to say, if you look at all nine Kennedy children, she was the only one who didn't march down the prescribed road and good for her. Kick was a charmer who never failed to catch the attention of the opposite sex. And she apparently dated her brother's friends whom she labeled red blooded jocks. When Joe Kennedy was appointed U S ambassador to the UK, he and his family left for London. And it was there that the 18 year old kick was named debutante of the year. At a party, she met William Cavendish, Marquess of Hardington, that was his title, who was set to be the future Duke of Devonshire. I don't know how um, these, you know, royal appointments or names or titles work at all. I'm just reading them off a page. But Kick called him Billy. Billy and Kick soon fell in love. After Germany invaded Poland in 1939, Joe Kennedy sent his family back to the United States, which is uh, definitely understandable. Although 19-year-old Kick begged to stay so that she could be with Billy, she returned to America at her father's behest. Kick stayed in the United States for the next four years, but she was determined to make her way back to the UK so she could be with Billy. 
And so she joined the Red Cross, which was sending volunteers to England. She finally made it back to London, and she and Billy, who was in the British Army at the time, packed up where they had or picked up where they had left off. Rose Kennedy, her mother, was not happy that her daughter was with a Protestant gasp. And Kick said that her mother said that marrying outside of the church was probably the worst sin one could commit because they were Catholic. It meant living one's life in mortal sin and eventually going to hell. All right. So Kick ignored her mother anyway, and she married Billy in a civil ceremony in May of 1944. Kick's older brother, Joe Jr., was the only one in attendance from the Kennedy family. Four weeks later, Billy was sent to the Belgian front. In August of the same year, Joe Jr. was killed in the plane explosion that I just talked about. Tragically, less than a month later, only four months after Billy and Kick were married, Billy was shot through the heart by a German sniper. I can't imagine anything more devastating, said Kick, but the rule is Kennedys don't cry. And the Kennedys sound like a much classier version of my family. After mourning Joe in the United States, Kick returned to England as Lady Hartington. She soon found love again with Peter Fitzwilliam, a wealthy Protestant, who was also a married man. So two strikes against him, he is both religiously unacceptable and also he's a married man. Fitzwilliam was actually in the process of divorcing his wife when the two began a relationship, but Kick's parents were still horrified and threatened to disown their daughter. And her friend Lynn McTaggart said that when you've seen so much tragedy during the war, it makes you feel that you better live for the moment. And that does kind of put things in perspective. And Kick decided to visit her father in Paris in order to convince him of the suitability of her new boyfriend, the newly divorced Lord Fitzwilliam. Setting off in a private plane from Paris towards the Riviera, they were caught in a storm that exposed the plane to severe turbulence. When they emerged from the clouds, the plane was in a deep dive, moments away from impact. Despite attempting to pull up, the strain on the plane was too much, and it literally disintegrated. All four on board were killed instantly. Kick's father, Joe, was the only Kennedy at the funeral, and the Kennedy family kept the death quiet because of the scandalous circumstances surrounding Kick's death and because of JFK's burgeoning political career. Kick was buried in a small churchyard in Edinsor, England, as Kathleen Cavendish, Marchioness of Hartington. Her husband, Billy, was buried in Belgium, where he was killed. Okay, yeah. That's a lot. That's really sad that only her father went to her funeral because, at what, she was dating a man who had literally just gotten divorced and wasn't the same religion? It's extremely sad. Even sadder. 1963, newborn Patrick Kennedy dies. On August 7th, 1963, Jacqueline Kennedy gave birth to a premature baby boy who was quickly baptized and named Patrick. He lived 39 hours, succumbing to complications of hyaline membrane disease despite attempts to save him. The couple had already suffered one miscarriage and stillbirth. Jackie Kennedy's first pregnancy in 1955 had resulted in a miscarriage, and only a year later, a stillborn baby girl, Arabella, was delivered by cesarean section. Her third and fourth pregnancies delivered Carolyn and John Jr. Baby Patrick was her fifth pregnancy. 
In June of 1963, President Kennedy went on a diplomatic tour of Europe while Jackie spent her last trimester on Cape, Cape Cod's Squaw Island, which is a private island at the tip of Hyannisport, the site of the Kennedy compound. In the case of an obstetric emergency, a backup plan had been made at nearby Otis Air Force Base, but the goal was to get her to Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. for the actual birth. Jackie was taking five-year-old Carolyn and two-year-old John Jr. for their daily horseback riding lessons in nearby Osterville. As the children headed for the stables, Jackie suddenly felt shooting pains in her back and stomach. Suspecting early labor, the First Lady told Secret Service agent Paul Landis to get the children so they could return to the Squaw Island house. From there, a helicopter was ready to take her to the hospital at Otis Air Force Base. She told the doctor accompanying her in the helicopter, Dr. Welsh, you've got to get me to the hospital on time. I don't want anything to happen to this baby. This baby mustn't be born dead. Jackie's obstetrician, Dr. John Walsh, told her, we'll have you there in plenty of time. Patrick's death raised the profile of infantile respiratory diseases and syndromes into the public eye and encouraged much more research on the topic, saving the lives of millions. Author Michael S. Ryan, a registered respiratory therapist, writes about how the death of JFK's child prompted research into effective ways to manage the respiratory distress syndrome in the book Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, A Brief Life That Changed the History of Newborn Care. Again, a tragic death that impacted future research and saved lives. Like, again, this is a horrible thing to have happened, but the, I guess the best possible outcome afterwards. Still so fucking sad. Here's the big one. 1963, John F. Kennedy Jr. is assassinated, or John F. Kennedy is assassinated. In one of the most famous presidential assassinations in history, on November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy was shot in the head in Dallas, Texas. He was 46 years old and had been in office for 1,036 days or just under three years. Unsurprisingly, his death shocked the world. People across America were devastated and there was a massive public outpouring of grief. If you know an American that was alive at that time, uh, they will absolutely be able to tell you where they were when President Kennedy was shot. Pretty much the same way someone from my generation can tell you where they were on 9-11. First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy rarely accompanied her husband on political outings, but she was beside him along with Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife for a 10-mile motorcade through the streets of downtown Dallas. Sitting in a Lincoln convertible, the Kennedys and Connollys waved at the large crowds that had gathered along the parade route. As their vehicle passed the Texas School Book Depository building at 12.30 p.m., Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly fired three shots from the sixth floor, fatally wounding President Kennedy and seriously injuring Governor Connolly. Kennedy was pronounced dead 30 minutes later at Dallas's Parkland Hospital. Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson, who was three cars behind President Kennedy in the motorcade, was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States at 2.39 p.m. He took the presidential oath of office aboard Air Force One as it sat on the runway at Dallas Love Field Airport. The swearing-in was witnessed by roughly 30 people, including Jacqueline Kennedy, who was still wearing clothes stained with her husband's blood. Seven minutes later, the presidential jet took off for Washington. And I read that Jackie Kennedy refused to change her clothing, which were literally covered in her husband's blood and brain matter because she wanted people to, quote, see what they'd done to him, which raises the question, 
Who are they? The next day, November 23rd, President Johnson issued his first proclamation, declaring November 25th to be a national day of mourning for the slain president. That Monday, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets of Washington to watch a horse-drawn carriage carry Kennedy's body to St. Matthew's Catholic Cathedral for Mass. The procession made its way to Arlington National Cemetery, where leaders of 99 nations gathered for the state funeral. Kennedy was buried with full military honors below Arlington House, where an eternal flame was lit by his widow. Lee Harvey Oswald, the supposed assassin, was born in New Orleans in 1939. Oswald joined the U.S. Marines in 1956. He was discharged in 1959 and nine days later left for the Soviet Union, where he tried unsuccessfully to become a citizen. Oswald was apparently a communist sympathizer, and he worked in Minsk and married a Soviet woman, perhaps to, I don't know, prove his loyalty. In 1962, he was allowed to return to the United States with his wife and infant daughter. In early 1963, he bought a 38 revolver and rifle with a telescopic sight by mail order, and on April 10th in Dallas, he attempted another assassination. He shot at and missed former U.S. Army General Edwin Walker, well known for his extreme right-wing views, while he sat in his own home. Later that month, Oswald went to New Orleans and founded a branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a pro-Castro organization. In September 1963, Oswald went to Mexico City, where investigators alleged that he attempted to secure a visa to travel to Cuba or to return to the USSR. In October, he returned to Dallas and took a job at the Texas School Book Depository Building. Less than an hour after Kennedy was shot, Oswald killed a policeman who questioned him on the street near his boarding house in Dallas. Thirty minutes later, Oswald was arrested in a movie theater by police responding to reports of a suspect being inside. He was formally arraigned on November 23rd for the murders of President Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. On November 24th, Oswald was brought to the basement of the Dallas police headquarters on his way to a more secure county jail. A crowd of police and press with cameras rolling gathered to witness his departure. As Oswald came into the room, Jack Ruby emerged from the crowd and killed him with a single shot from a 38 revolver. Ruby, who was immediately detained, claimed that the anger over Kennedy's murder was the motive for his action. Some called him a hero, but he was nonetheless charged with first-degree murder because you just can't shoot and kill people with premeditation, my guy. Jack Ruby, originally known as Jacob Rubenstein, was an owner of strip clubs and dance halls in Dallas and had some minor connections to organized crime. He features prominently in Kennedy assassination theories, and many believe that he killed Oswald to keep him from revealing a much larger conspiracy. During his trial, Ruby denied the allegation and pleaded innocent on the grounds that his grief over Kennedy's murder had caused him to suffer psychomotor epilepsy and shoot Oswald. The jury found Ruby guilty of murder with malice and sentenced him to die. In October 1966, the Texas Court of Appeals reversed that decision on the grounds of improper admission of testimony and the fact that Ruby could not have received a fair trial in Dallas at the time. In January 1967, while awaiting a new trial to be held in Wichita Falls, Ruby died of lung cancer in a Dallas hospital. The official Warren Commission report of 1964 concluded that neither Oswald nor Ruby were part of a larger conspiracy, mm -hmm, either domestic or international, to assassinate President Kennedy. 
Despite its firm conclusions, the report failed to silence conspiracy theories around the world. And in 1978, the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in a preliminary report that Kennedy was, quote, probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy that may have involved multiple shooters and organized crime. The committee's findings, as with those of the Warren Commission, continue to be disputed. Ooh, uh, I don't even know if I want to get into this one right now, but I'll dip my toe in. Here's a bold claim that is completely my own opinion. The CIA did it. President Kennedy actually did, this is a fact, learn that the CIA was attempting to assassinate Castro and he wanted to avoid an international incident. He threatened to disband the CIA because of their blatant disregard for authority and their lack of accountability. Uh, I think that they enlisted Castro sympathizer Lee Harvey Oswald to make that hit. Boom. Conspiracy theory. I'm sure it's nothing original. I'm sure you've heard it before, but that's that's the conspiracy theory that I believe. Next, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy, often known by his initials RFK, served as U.S. Attorney General between 1961 and 1964 and was subsequently a senator for New York. By 1968, RFK was a leading candidate for Democratic presidential nomination following the footsteps of his brother, John. Shortly after midnight on June 5th, 1968, RFK was shot at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles after winning the California presidential primary. Immediately after he announced to his supporters that the country was ready to end its divisions, Kennedy was shot several times by 24-year-old Palestinian Sirhan Sirhan in a young Oh, he was a young Palestinian who claimed to have acted in retaliation for RFK's pro-Israeli stance during the 1967 Six-Day War. It's a lot to unpack there. He was pronounced dead a day later on June 6, 1968. So for context, the summer of 1968 was a pretty big turning point in American history. Both the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement were at their peak, and Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated in the spring, igniting riots across the country. In the face of civil unrest, President Lyndon B. Johnson, who again, ain't nobody elect him to be president, he became president after an assassination, decided not to seek a second term in the upcoming presidential election. Sorry, I'm stumbling. I've got a sore throat. Robert Kennedy stepped in to fill the void and experienced a massive amount of support. Kennedy was perceived by many to be the only person in American politics capable of uniting the people. He was beloved by the minority community for his devotion to the civil rights cause. After winning California's primary, Kennedy was in the position to receive the Democratic nomination and face off against Richard Nixon in the general election. As star athletes Rafer Johnson and Roosevelt Greer accompanied Kennedy out a rear exit of the Ambassador Hotel, Sirhan Sirhan stepped forward with a rolled up campaign poster that concealed his 22 revolver. He was only a foot away when he fired several shots at Kennedy. Greer and Johnson wrestled Sirhan to the ground, but not before five bystanders were wounded. Greer was distraught afterward and blamed himself for allowing Kennedy to be shot. Sirhan confessed to the crime at his trial and received a death sentence on March 3, 1969. However, since the California State Supreme Court invalidated all death penalty sentences in 1972, Sirhan spent the rest of his life in prison. Sirhan has since said that he believed Kennedy was instrumental in the oppression of Palestinians. Hubert Humphrey ended up running 
for the Democrats in 1968, but lost to Nixon. The assassination prompted a change in the mandate of Secret Service, which subsequently allowed for the protection of presidential candidates. Again, a tragedy that enacted like a new law, new mandate, new, you know, procedural outcomes. Again, I'm not going to go super deep with this, but let me just say, Sirhan Sirhan may have been a Manchurian candidate. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, 1969, the Chappaquiddick incident. Late on the evening of July 18th, 1969, a black Oldsmobile being driven by U.S. Senator Edward Ted, again, why, why, okay, nicknamed Ted, his name, his first name is Edward, Kennedy, plunged off the Dyke Bridge on the tiny island of Chappaquiddick off Martha's Vineyard, landing upside down in the tidal Poucha Pond below. 37-year-old Kennedy survived the crash, but the woman riding with him in the car did not. Uh, though newspapers at the time identified her as a blonde, cool guys, she was actually 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny, a respected political worker who had, in fact, worked on the presidential campaign, campaign of Senator Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy. Uh, Ted waited to report the crash to the police until 10 a.m. the next morning, by which point Kopechny's body had already been recovered from the sunken car. Kennedy was found guilty of leaving the scene of an accident, and he received a two-month suspended jail sentence, and his driver's license was suspended for 16 months. So a tiny little slap on the wrist. Ted later claimed that he repeatedly dove into the strong and murky current to try and find Kopechny before finally returning to the cottage. He then drove back to the scene with his cousin, Joseph Gargan, and aide, Paul Markham, who both tried in vain to find Kopechny. But instead of reporting the accident to the police at the time it happened, Kennedy returned to his hotel in Edgartown. As a result, Mary Jo Kopechny remained underwater for some nine hours until her body was recovered the next morning. The incident at Chappaquiddick ended Kopechny's life and derailed Ted Kennedy's presidential ambitions. Who cares about his ambitions? But nearly a half century later, the details of what happened that night remain unclear. Conspiracy theories and questions endure to this day, like how did Ted Kennedy end up driving off a bridge? Was he drunk? What were he and Kopechny doing together that night in his car? Was there a third person in the car? And why the fuck did he wait so long to report the accident? In a speech the following week, uh, Kennedy maintained that he had not been driving drunk and that there was, quote, no truth, no truth, whatever. And it says whatever. I'm reading the quote to the widely circulated suspicions of immoral conduct that have been leveled at my behavior and Kopechny's regarding that evening. And Kennedy attributed his actions after the accident to injury because he suffered a concussion, shock, and confusion. So Mary Jo Kopechny most likely did not die instantaneously, but her final moments remain a mystery. When John Farrer, a diver for the local fire department, found her body the morning after the crash, he said that its position suggested that she had remained alive for an unknown period of time after the car went underwater. Her face was pressed into the footwell and her hands gripped the back of the front seat as though she had been trying to reach a pocket of air, which is absolutely horrifying. 
The report from the inquest into the accident released by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 1970 concluded that as there was no evidence any air remained in the submerged car, it wouldn't seek or allow any testimony about how long she may have lived as, quote, this could only be conjecture and purely speculative. Cool. Mary Jo Kopechny grew up in New Jersey and volunteered for John F. Kennedy's presidential campaign while in college. After getting a business degree, she taught at a Catholic mission school in Alabama and worked for a Florida senator before getting a job in Robert Kennedy's Senate office. During his 1968 presidential campaign, Kopechny helped write the candidates' speeches. The weekend of the accident... Uh, Ted Kennedy's associates had invited Kopechny and five other women who had worked on the campaign to a party cookout deal in the vineyard to reward their hard work. On the night of July 18th, Kopechny and the other boiler room girls, as they were known, attended a cookout at a cottage on Chappaquiddick along with Kennedy and five other men. Late in the evening, Kennedy and Kopechny left the party together. Yeah. All, all of this sounds like a very creepy situation of getting stranded in the middle of nowhere with creepy men that could in no way possibly go wrong. The Chappaquiddick incident, as it came to be known, severely undermined Ted's hopes of ever becoming president, but boo-fucking-who because it actually killed a woman as well. When he eventually did run in the 1980 Democratic presidential primaries, he lost to incumbent president Jimmy Carter. Um, I hate this so much. I feel like something is not above board and that's what happened here before the accident even occurred like I, I think something happened before the car went off the bridge then after he drove his car off of a bridge he just ran away and left a woman to drown in his car I love how he claimed that he wasn't drunk because people at the party said he was drinking um, he was drinking plenty this whole thing is fucking suspicious and gross to me and I think that Many people helped him cover it up, obviously, because of who he is and who his family is. It's just part of the good old boy system. Meanwhile, a woman is dead for absolutely no reason. 1973, Ted Kennedy Jr.'s, Ted Kennedy Jr.'s leg is amputated. I'm so confused by all their names. They all, uh, their names are very confusing to me. The son of Ted Kennedy and nephew of JFK. Ted Kennedy Jr. was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a form of bone cancer, in his right leg. The cancer was quickly identified, and his leg was successfully amputated in November of 1973. And thankfully, cancer did not reoccur. Ted and his wife, Joan, were at Georgetown University Hospital during the operation. While his wife remained behind afterward, the senator left the hospital 20 minutes after the operation for Holy Trinity Church in Georgetown, which was one block from the university campus, for the wedding of Kathleen Kennedy, where he gave the bride away. Kennedys don't cry, I guess. Mm, that's some hardcore shit. Your son just had his leg amputated and you're going to a wedding. All right. 1984. David Kennedy dies from an overdose. The fourth son of Robert F. Kennedy and his wife, Ethel Shakel. David nearly drowned as a boy, but was saved by his father. The day after his own near-death experience, David watched his father's assassination on live television. David turned to recreational drug use to cope with his trauma, kind of understandable, and a car accident in 1973 left him addicted to opioids. Despite numerous trips to rehab after minor overdoses, David never could quite kick his addiction. He was found dead in April 1984, having overdosed on a combination of cocaine and prescription medication. 
In the final tragedy, 1999, JFK Jr. dies in a plane crash. John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. was born on November 25th, 1960, just a few weeks after his father was elected the 35th president of the United States. On his third birthday, John John, as he is known, attended the funeral of his, his assassinated father and was photographed saluting his coffin in a famous and haunting image. He and his sister Caroline were raised in Manhattan by their mother, Jacqueline. After graduating from Brown University and a very brief stint in acting, he attended New York University School of Law. He passed the bar on his third try and worked in New York as an assistant district attorney, winning all six of his cases. In 1995, he founded the political magazine George, which very quickly grew in circulation. As a child of American icons, he was, you know, obviously always in the public eye. In 1988, he was named the sexiest man alive by People magazine, and in September of 1996, he married girlfriend Carolyn Bissett, a fashion publicist after several very high-profile relationships, some with famous women. Although he was adventurous, he took great pains to separate himself from the more self-destructive behavior of some of the other Kennedy men, you know, like cheating, lying, and killing girls in Chappaquiddick. On July 16, 1999, JFK Jr. took off from Essex County Airport in New Jersey and flew his single-engine plane into a hazy night. At this point, he had about 300 hours of flight experience, and he actually turned down an offer from one of his flight instructors to accompanying him, saying he wanted to do it alone. And that's, you know, one of those butterfly effect moments where, you know, one little decision changes everything about the rest of your life. To reach his destination at Martha's Vineyard, he would have to fly 200 miles and the last leg would be over a dark and hazy ocean. Inexperienced pilots can lose sight of the horizon under such conditions. Unable to see shore lights or other landmarks, he would have to depend only on his instruments, but he had apparently not yet qualified for a license to fly using only instruments. Also, he was recovering from a broken ankle, which may have affected his ability to pilot the plane. At Martha's Vineyard, Kennedy was planning to drop off his sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett. From there, he and his wife, Carolyn, were going to head to the Kennedy compound on Cape Cod's Hyannis Port for the wedding of Rory Kennedy, the youngest child of RFK. But the Piper Saratoga air aircraft never made it to its destination. Radar data examined later showed the plane plummeting from 2,200 feet to 1,100 feet in a span of 14 seconds, and that is a rate far beyond the aircraft's safe maximum. It then disappeared from the radar screen altogether. Kennedy's plane was reported missing by friends and family members, and an intensive rescue operation was launched in conjunction with the Coast Guard, the Navy, the Air Force, and civilians. After two days of searching, the thousands of people involved gave up hope of finding survivors and then turned their efforts to recovering the wreckage of the plane and the bodies. Americans mourn the loss of one of the country's most admired families, a sadness that was especially poignant given the relentless string of tragedies that haunted the Kennedy family over the years. On July 21st, Navy divers recovered the bodies of JFK Jr., his wife, and sister-in-law from the wreckage of the plane, which was under 116 feet of water about eight miles off the vineyard's shores. So they were very, very close to their destination. The next day, their cremated remains were buried at sea during a ceremony on the USS Briscoe. 
a private mass for JFK Jr. and Carolyn, was held on July 23rd at the Church of St. Thomas More in Manhattan, where the late Jackie Kennedy Onassis was a parishioner. Investigators studying the wreckage of the Piper Saratoga found no problems with its mechanical or navigational systems. In their final report, released in 2000, the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that the crash was caused most likely by an inexperienced pilot who became disoriented in the dark and lost control. So how do we feel? Do you think they're cursed? Because I kind of think they might be cursed, or at the very least, they just have some of the worst luck ever. I know bad things happen in families, but really, this is just an extraordinary amount of catastrophic events, including two, not one, two assassinations. I feel like one is insane enough, but two. Kennedys don't cry, uh, I think says it all. This family just plowed ahead through the absolute worst things that could happen to anyone. Like, you know, convincing your daughter to get a botched surgery that leaves her completely incapacitated. My God, this is some telenovela soap opera shit. And this family is American royalty. Also, um, I didn't even get into the personal family drama of the Kennedys, including rumors that the elder Joe Kennedy would literally bring women into the house and loudly have sex with them while his family sat at the dinner table, or the numerous affairs that JFK had while married to Jackie Kennedy, or the alcoholism that plagued the family, or JFK's physical maladies. No, no, I just stuck with the major, and I mean major events. There is a lot more. I could have gone on for days. You can chalk all of this up to coincidence or you can chalk it up to, you know, affluenza. But I mean, wow, this family just faced constant tragedy. Well, I hope you enjoyed our historical departure from true crime, even though there is true crime in there. I consider the Chappaquiddick incident and both assassinations to be true crime. And I will probably delve into both well, all three of those cases further. If you like what you hear, you can hear more episodes on all podcasting platforms. Um, give Good Pods HQ a try. I really like their formatting system and also Sprecker. And I release new episodes on Mondays and Fridays. On social media, you can find me on Instagram at Autumn's Oddcast, on Facebook at Autumn's Oddities, and on Patreon at Autumn's Oddities. Uh, there's bonus episodes on Patreon. You get those at any level. They're just for Patreon members. Uh, you also get early release and you can talk to me directly. I will answer you. We can be best friends, you know, whatever you like. You can also send me messages on social media. You can send me emails, scary stories, case suggestions to autumnsoddiespodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. If your app allows, please give me five stars, maybe write a couple of nice words about me. That would really help me out. You know, it gives my tiny little operation a boost. And I hope you keep listening. And remember, if it's creepy and weird, you'll find it here. <laughs>